Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we have a favor to ask of our listeners. We created a listener survey so that we can get to know all of you a bit better, and we would so appreciate it if you could take a few moments to fill it out. And to entice you to take the survey, we are entering anyone who fills it out into a contest to win a free Grab an Or t-shirt. Ravi and I each have one. It's a great t-shirt. It's a great conversation starter. Uh, we love it when people tag us on social media in theirs. Uh, and you can get one just for filling out the survey. You'll be entered to win one. So you you visit wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54. It's Wonder wondermedianetwork.com slash majority54. We would really appreciate it if you do this because it is a big part of us making editorial decisions about how we proceed with the podcast in the future. And we want feedback from the listeners so we can give you the product that you're looking for. So thank you for doing it. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, this is very exciting. Your brother Yuri is here. Yeah, people are going to have a hard time because as you've, as you've mentioned, and I always forget this, my brother and I have very similar voices, but I imagine sooner or later by the content of our answers, you'll be able to distinguish us. And <laughs> Uh, my brother and I are two years apart. We grew up uh, in the same attic together in Staten Island, New York, mostly. And uh, as you'll gather from this, we have we have some different political views, uh, maybe more in common than we realize, which is maybe something we'll, we'll discover on this podcast. And uh, I invited Yuri on because I talk about reaching out to relatives and friends uh, who have different political beliefs all the time. And, and I was talking to my brother one day a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago at this point, And he said, well, you know, I don't want to blow up your spot, but you know, how, how hard are you trying to convince me of anything? And we, that kind of started a conversation about inviting him on this podcast. And he is with us today and he is a federal corrections officer uh, at a federal penitentiary down in North Carolina. He served in uh, the U S army uh, in Afghanistan and like me, is a proud graduate of the State University in New York. And uh, I welcome this podcast as somebody who, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage to just jump into a podcast with mostly uh, Democratic listeners and, and two Democratic co-hosts. So, Yuri, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me here. Those very uh, kind words. Well, okay. The truth is, this is an intervention for both of you about the Buffalo Bills thing. <laughs> uh, so, you're both Bills fans, we right? Are like, time. this is something yeah. your dad did to you? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Well, um, I mean, you're you're having a pretty good season. That's good. And I mean, us Chiefs fans in, uh, appreciate it. Chiefs, oh yeah. <laughs> so we appreciate. Chiefs should it. know what it's like. You know, they they were in the downtrod just like Buffalo for a long time. So that's right. That's right. Now, all right. Before we talk politics or anything, Ravi, you'll excuse Yuri and I. We have to like vet bro out for a minute. That has to happen. <laughs> so, uh, Yuri, you were Army. What what'd you do? Just give me the story. I was Army Reserve. I was Reserve. Okay, me too. 
I joined in 2009. Um, I was out in California. I just needed something to kind of steer me in the right direction. So, uh, you know, I was reservist when I was overseas. I didn't do anything crazy. I was like the roving mailman. So I'd go to the little bases. You probably maybe seen some people do that when you were mm -hmm. over there, I imagine. Yeah, so you were and, flying around on helicopters. That's not yeah, without helicopters danger. Yeah, helicopters or either like uh, LMTVs or Humvees usually. Okay. Drive back and forth these little bases like in where? the Kabul area. You, okay, so you're so you like RC RC Central or whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, the RC Central ISAF. I was actually original station at the ISAF headquarters, my home base, and I went yeah. to a few different bases there during my time. So how about yourself? I know you were. I believe you were an intelligence officer, correct? Yeah, yeah. I was out of Eggers, so I was right by you. Oh, I went to Camp Eggers all the time. Yeah, I went there all the time. I lived in those safe houses not too far from where you were okay. working. In that kind of green zone area. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was where I slept at yeah. night. And then Okay, uh, that's that uh, yeah. Yeah, I was at uh I was also at Phoenix. You've probably been to uh -huh. Phoenix, yep, I imagine. Went out to Phoenix. Um went to all those bases around there. Phoenix had an orange Julius. Yes, it did. Oh yeah. man. Felt like home. <laughs> Felt like it had home. a Burger King also. It had a Burger King. Yeah. See, that may be that may have been new because so when I was there, there were two things you could get that felt like home. There was the Orange Julius at Phoenix, which I got one time, and then there was a trailer at Bagram where two Afghan local nationals sold Whoppers, and oh, yeah. that's it. And I didn't even like Whoppers, but I yeah. would volunteer <laughs> to command convoys to get up to Bagram yeah. for a Whopper, and then I would get yeah. sick on the way home. Yeah. In the convoy, it was ridiculous. I don't know why I, I never did ate that. that Burger King. Well, they had Pizza Hut, I think, or something like that. Also, by the time I went there, it was 2012. So you probably, I bet you're probably there a lot earlier. Oh seven, oh six, oh seven. Well, welcome back, welcome home, I should say. And here's the deal: uh, we're gonna have this conversation. I, I figure I'll start. I got a few questions. Like, y'all grew up in the same house, and you're just two years apart. Who's older? Yuri. I'm older. Yeah. Okay, he's like. Affirmatively, I'm old. <laughs> right. So you grew up in the same house, apparently in the same attic. You're just two years apart. Yeah. And and my understanding from talking to Ravi is like your mom leans more uh, to the left. Ravi leans more to the left. Your dad leans pretty far to the right. Your yeah. sister, I think, maybe is a little more on Ravi's side, and then you're a little more yeah. on your dad's side. How did this happen? Uh, well, you know, I'd say my mother was definitely a bigger influence. You know, uh, you know, she was always around. Uh, we grew up with her, so she definitely had the biggest influence. When I grew up, I was always sympathetic to Democrats. Just, you know, mom was a big JFK fan. She loved Bill Clinton. You know, I don't know how I evolved. I think definitely, you know, when I was in college, 9-11 happened. I think that definitely had a big impact on me, my outlook on the world. Um, and I think it slowly started change around that time. Um, but it even when John Kerry ran against George Bush, I voted for John Kerry. Hmm. Even though I didn't really like Yeah, it, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I, it was just in my, it was so ingrained in my system. Like the Democrat thing was ingrained in your system. Yeah, it was just so ingrained. The Democrats were the good guys. Uh, Republicans were the bad guys. Even, you know, booing the March to Life float at the parade on 4th of July. I know a reason why I'm doing that, but it was just what my uncle did, my mom did. Um, so it was just, you know, I, that's how I you know, grew up with the mentality. And just over time, I just, my outlook started to change. You know, it's hard to pinpoint it, but 9-11 definitely changed my perspective a lot, I would say. That's when I started pay a lot more attention to what was going on in the world. So 9-11, but then you're still, by, by 04, you're still voting Democratic. And then there must be something that happened even more, like like maybe in Bush's second term. Because it sounds like by, by the time we get to 08, you didn't vote for Obama, probably. Yeah, and if I could add, and Yuri, correct me if I'm wrong, you were heading in that direction. I'm, I'm surprised to hear that you voted for Kerry because I know that you were pretty supportive of the Iraq war at the time. It was like the biggest, I think some of the yeah. most heated arguments we had were over the Iraq war. Yeah. 
So you were kind of trending before. So I guess it was 9-11-204, even though you voted for Kerry, you were still kind of well, heading in that direction. I right? would say it, it's almost a weird psychology. I was, you know, it's almost like you see this, you saw this in the South a lot, you know, with the old like blue dog Democrat. Their positions had changed, but they were just so culturally, there's still some remnants of it to this day. They're so culturally aligned with the, with the old Democratic Party they were. And then even if their views changed, they really support Republicans. They couldn't quite totally go to the other side. I think there was some of that remnant. I was just naturally, well, maybe raised to be Democrat, basically, is what I'm saying. Well, and you were, at that time, you're still like living in New York, probably. Yes. Yes. At that time, I came back from college. I was still living in New York. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, everybody around you is a Democrat. Pretty much, for the most part, I would say. Or most of my social circle was probably mostly ignorant to politics on any kind of deep level, at least. Yeah, now now more political, I think, than ever, right? Like a lot of Trump and we're polarized like everybody else. There's like 50% of our friends growing up were, are like diehard yeah. Trump and 50% are the opposite, it seems like. Yeah, well, you're forced to pick a side nowadays, you know, with the social media and stuff. It kind of forces everyone to kind of declare themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, are there some, some things that occurred that like pushed you even further? Like like for me, the the Bush administration, I think, made me more liberal. Like, I, you know, I remember being really, like really admiring and I, I did and up until the day he died, John McCain, but so much so that like, I remember really following that primary, the Republican primary in 2000 and being like, God, I really like this McCain guy. And then, you know, by the time we got to the election, it was Gore and Bush. And so it wasn't a question for me. And then the Bush presidency, like, and the Iraq war, like that made me more liberal. I'm curious, like, did the Obama administration make you feel like you were more conservative? No, by the time Obama came around, I already was pretty firm, I believe. So, uh, something else I'm thinking of now is also when I was in college at the time, the kind of what I would deem very far left politics of a lot of the professors and some of the classes I was taking definitely turned me off. Read a lot of history and stuff like that. Maybe my, as Ravi is made aware, my mother's was even before she was a professor, was always very much into history and stuff. So, uh, you know, always caught my attention. I, you know, I was always very interested in kind of the early 20th century Europe kind of the uh, anarchist movements, the Marxist movements, you know, national social, all those kind of extreme movements at that time, kind of, you know, capitalism, you know, the old mm-hmm. Cold War debates, capitalism versus uh, socialism or, you know, Marxism, however you want to frame it. And I was very much firmly on the uh, capitalist side when it comes to economics. And I kind of realized that as I, I started to, uh, you know, learn more about it, study more about it, become more aware. That definitely framed it. That combined with 9-11, you know, in hindsight, I, you know, the Iraq war was a giant disaster. I realized that as I became, you know, more aware, especially my you know, time in Afghanistan showed me that. We can get that later, but, you know, how... Well, no, let's do it now. Out. I'm curious, yeah. like, because, well, I mean, yeah, I, I have a thought, similar story, but tell me tell yeah. me for you. You know, the Iraq war at the time, you know, I thought, you know, I was naive, you know, a little bit when it comes to war and what we can actually accomplish. You know, I'm, I'm still reading the old, you know, World War II. We came in, mm-hmm. we took over Germany, Japan, transformed them into, you know, now they're selling us automobiles and, you know, toasters and dishwashers, playstations and stuff. And then, you know, so I thought, you know, we need to do something about, you know, we got a major problem here. Let's, you know, maybe, you know, I bought into maybe a little too much that uh, neocon kind of fantasy of we're going to turn Iraq into, you know, Missouri, <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> and everything was going to be great. And then, by the time I went to uh, Afghanistan, I already kind of lost that. But that totally, when I went over there, I realized the folly of it, you know, the absolute 
just, I don't know what the right word is, you know, the uh, just the insanity of thinking you're going to change a country like that and what we can really accomplish in a place. And just maybe it definitely humanized it more, too. I definitely agree with the Democrats a lot more than I used to when it comes to foreign policy issues, for sure. Well, yeah, like there's hubris, right? Like that, I think that's that's the yeah. word you're looking for, I think, because I only know it because yeah. somebody wrote a book about that whole thing entitled yeah. it that, but like. No, I remember that book. Yeah, I do um, remember that book. Which is probably where I learned the word. Because I remember being in Afghanistan and having people say to me, like, I'd be like going to Jalalabad and and there and we were going to go on helicopters because I don't know if you ever did the, the J-Bad pass, but like it's not a good ride. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and they're like, <laughs> uh, and then they're like, well, the helicopter's mostly been moved to Iraq and, you know, stuff like that. And I'm like, so I get you. But when you say like, and R- Ravi, I'm going to let you talk to your brother. I promise. But no, uh, no, no. What- <laughs> I lo- this is good. I'm learning a lot here. I, I forget some of the stuff I knew, but I've forgotten. So, so like when you say you know, there's a lot of stuff where you agree with the Democrats on foreign policy. I'm curious, a, what that is. But that's not the whole point of what we're here to talk about. I also want to know yeah. where you think the Democrats are all messed up on foreign policy. Well, when it comes, I think I agree with the Democrats' foreign policy ultimately when it comes to their their end conclusion. You know, let's say Iraq war was wrong. One thing that pissed me off about Romney, I remember watching debate over there, and I was in Afghanistan at the time. During the troop surge, he didn't mention Afghanistan, if I remember correctly, once during the debate, but we talked about Iran, you know, and I'm like, this is insane, you know. Uh, But the one thing that always bothered me about Democrats is certain segments, not necessarily Democrat, but let's say certain segments of the left, there's a certain anti-Westernism, sometimes bordering on anti-Americanism, that sometimes seeps into the uh, discussion. And my view is much more of a practical point of view. We shouldn't do, you know, we shouldn't be in Iraq because this doesn't make any sense. You know, we can't accomplish anything. It's going to, you know, uh, our, our bottom line in the long-term strategy, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to do, it's not going to accomplish anything. It's going to hurt us. That's how I come at it. And sometimes some elements, I'm not accusing everyone of this. There are some elements, particularly, that's one thing I noticed when I was in college at the time that is steeped in the old line, you know, kind of Noam Chomsky still trying to make up for, you know, the imperial pa- imperialist past, you know, that anti-Western mentality that I never, it always turned me off, that keeps me from fully embracing, you know, that side of the aisle, you know, when it comes to, let's say, foreign policy. So, like, I want to make a distinction. I'm curious how it, how it resonates with you. So, like, when you, you feel like on the one hand, there's the folks who are like, we screwed up. And so we, I'm paraphrasing, so tell me if I do it poorly. Uh, we screwed up. And therefore, we are sort of uh, without mm, virtue, like as a country. And then there's the other element of it that's sort of like, and I feel like is more the way President Obama, for instance, has tried to articulate this stuff, which is, we can be better. And so I'm, I'm curious, it, it feels like you see a lot of that stuff more as, like, as you said, anti-American. And I'm curious, the distinction of anti-American for you versus anti-current American government's policies. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I understand that. And I wouldn't classify Obama necessarily as anti-American. I did tend to agree with Obama on a lot of his foreign policy. Uh, um, not everything, but, you know, a lot of what, you know, and he, you know, he was very careful to, uh, for the most part, try to avoid that, you know, worst instincts of, you know, that kind of, it's not even necessarily anti-American. It's very anti-Western. I think a, a foreign policy issue that illustrates his best would be, I would say, is Israel. Not saying you listen. There's issues there, obviously, with the Palestinians, and Israelis, but the hyper focus on the Palestinians, as opposed to name an ethnic group in the Middle East. You know, you ever hear anything about the Coptic Christians or the Yazidis or name a group? There's so many. Uh, you can go down the list. Look at what's going on in China right now. No one cares. It's an anti. You know, they look at Israel as kind of the white imperialist outpost. 
you know, in the Middle East. And that's why there's so much focus on, in my opinion, why there's so much focus on that particular issue at the expense of so many other uh, issues and uh, ethnic, you know, conflicts all throughout even just that region, never mind the world. I'm not, I'm pretty sure you don't think that Biden or Obama are anti-Israel, right? No, I don't. I wouldn't say that at all. I'm not even pro-Israel. You know, I'm not, I look at Israel like anything else in a practical matter. You know, you can criticize Israel. I'm not super strong Israeli supporters. You know, they're very knee-jerk too. You know, they, you know, you, it's all or nothing. You know, you, you say anything, they're going to label you with a broad brush. So, but Obama and Biden are very much traditional, Demo- you know, like, uh, especially Biden, you know, he's, you know, a stereotypical politician, you know, he's, he's basically going to go with whatever, you know, cool to be, uh, tough on crime. He was all for, you know, the crime bill and stuff. Now he's going to shift with the winds. You know, he's, he's your standard politician very much. You know, you couldn't take it out of central casting any better than Biden. Hey everybody. I want to tell you about another show that we think you might like. The problem with the news right now, it's everywhere. And each day it can feel like we're all mindlessly scrolling. That's where Slate's What Next comes in. This short daily podcast is here to help you make sense of things. From fleshing out new angles to uncovering stories that have largely been unreported, host Mary Harris guides listeners through complex topics with ease. When the news feels overwhelming, they are here to help you answer, what next? Subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Even though 9-11 was instrumental in in, uh, helping you crystallize views that were closer in line with the modern Republican Party than the Democrats, it seems like domestic issues seem to be animating you more today. Is that right? I would say so. Absolutely. Uh, Especially when it comes to economics and even like some not I wouldn't say not social issues because that's wrong. You know, I'm not talking about abortion or gay marriage. I'm talking more, you know, it's a very you know loaded topic. But some of this kind of social justice stuff, which is I know is a broad umbrella and covering a lot of things, but some of that stuff and just where I see is going does concern me and definitely even makes me more firmly. And you, you, you said <laughs> yeah, this now say. twice and I want to underline yeah. it, which is like, it's yeah. not necessarily where you think the democratic prominent politicians are today. And, and, and if I'm mischaracterizing you, please let me know. It's no, less correct. about, it's less about Biden or Obama, but more about what you view as the next wave of yeah. Democrats and their policy. So tell us a little That's bit right. about not necessarily who, cause I know where we're going to go with this, yeah. but, but like yeah, what, yeah. um, <laughs> But uh, but what those views are that you are most concerned about? Well, I got. I mean, this is an issue you probably appreciate, but it's an issue that I, I you know, I've talked to some coworkers about because they don't know anything about this, and it's a very obscure issue that not many people are going to care about. But I know. Have you been following this kind of Harvard versus the uh, you know kind of Asian students case? You know, and I'm a parent with two young Asian kids, and that case deeply troubles me because it's not just Harvard. I mean, if anybody knows what we're talking about, we're talking about um, essentially, there's a group of Asian, I guess, parents, applicants that are that sued Harvard University on their admissions decisions, where they allege that they're discriminating against Asian candidates. And I think, you know, we can get into it if you want to, but the evidence is pretty clear they are. I would just say, like, just for the purposes of this, I agree with you that the evidence is pretty clear that they do that. And, you know, it's obviously a, a, a maybe a niche issue for not, you know, it's not a huge chunk of the population. But for me personally, it's a big issue. But let's actually first talk about the the, the Harvard case because I think it might illustrate maybe where we agree on certain things and maybe where we deviate. So where, what I agree with you is that I think there was clear discrimination, and I think that there is, and I think that will actually bear, especially with the courts that we have right now. I think that that case is gonna. I don't actually think I'm gonna like the ultimate result that comes out of the case, but I think the premise that there was discrimination, I think, is clear. Now, 
where I train my ire and my outrage is not on is not narrowly on the question of uh, how Asian Americans are treated alone, but if the fact that Harvard, Yale, most of these institutions are legacy institutions where such huge percentages of the people who attend are just rich people who buy their way in. And and I, I, I actually would have just made a Jared Kushner joke, but I know it's not just Republicans or Democrats. And, you know, when Kushner did, his family probably were Democrats. So, but it seems to me like the rich seem to be pitting us against each other, whether it's the white working class, the Asian working class, et cetera. And if we just got rid of legacy admissions, we would both be able to take take care of qualified Asian American families and maybe where we depart ways, which is try to deal with the legacy of racism and slavery that our country has and by doing things like having affirmative action for other communities, which I think is probably where you and I would disagree. Well, I mean, I think when it comes to the legacy thing, obviously that's a case in like Ivy League schools, but I think that kind of obfuscates, if that's the correct word, the bigger issue. Yes, of course, there's a legacy of racism and it should be addressed, you know, to a certain extent. But the reason why Asian, you know, any data I've looked at, and I've looked at it, you know, relatively closely, the Asian students, regardless of income, immigrant background, second, first generation, they're outperforming everyone. And it has nothing to do with, you know, Asians have very little political power, far less than any other major group in the United States. They're not in the in control of the bureaucracies. They're not control of the police departments, the city councils, the schools. They're doing it off strict graft. And they're often marginalized in ways, societal ways, that maybe doesn't get a lot of coverage or is widely understood by the larger public. You know, for instance, let's say being an Asian or Indian in the military or, or being in the, in a, as a correction officer. I'm, a, you know, I, I work in a hyper, because uh, I, I can, I'm free to say this plenty about work. Where I work, it's everything's black versus white versus Hispanic, woman versus man. And when you're the one Asian that works there, you're not part of any group. So let's say they have a promotion or something. Well, we got to, okay, we're going to look out for the black group this time. We're going to look out for white this time, uh, you know, LGBT, you know, whatever, whatever, women, whatever group they need to check little boxes and look out for their, everybody's got to look out for their little tribe. And who winds up losing in that? You know, someone like myself. But, you know, ultimately for me, it's not the end of the world. But when it comes to schools, it's very easy. And I guess it's very inconvenient, the success that Asian students have had in school. And it cuts across, like I mentioned earlier, all sorts of eth- even different ethnic groups. Uh, you know, because Asia is a big continent with lots of different groups, lots of different cultures. It cuts across socioeconomic status. It cuts across geographical a- areas. So to me, you should have some, you know, affirmative action try to... Uh, uh, in some respects, you know, but to me, it should be very limited, much more than, let's say, racial factors. You can, I think economic factors are something where you could look into more. And I think naturally you would have, it would kind of even out the demographics naturally if you did it by economics. But at the end of the day, if the best, if 70% of the Harvard uh, undergraduate class of 2021 is Asian based off qualifications, and so be it. That's how I look at it, because everyone is an individual. You know, you shouldn't put people in groups like that and have them compete against just their group which is essentially what's going on right now. Let's talk about affirmative action generally, right? Because most of the folks listening, you know, who Harvard takes in, like it doesn't affect them as much. And I feel like Harvard or any other school that or workplace that is trying to implement affirmative action in some capacity, I actually think is trying to do something that actually the only workplace I've ever been in that achieved it was the military, which is to get to the point where you have a representation of the country 
like demographically that is so similar to the country. I always felt like what I learned from the military about affirmative action and diversity, Yuri, was that doing it for political purposes, like hiring a diverse staff to look good, was totally missing the point because what I felt like I learned was having all these people from different backgrounds and different races like made our unit better. And I don't know if that was your experience as well. I mean, my unit, I was in California, but my unit was overwhelmingly Hispanic, which is great, you know, but... So it, like, represented the area in a way. Yeah, so, like, uh, you know, but, you know, it's just for my workplace, but it's, what has happened is it's gotten so pervasive that the only, you know, this is a government, you know, unionized, the only thing that matters is the kind of, I mean, this is a, a new word that's, I mean, I'm sure it's been around a while, but the intersectionality, you know, they, they judge you off and... Your qualifications mean very little. You, you can't hold anybody accountable for anything. The only thing that you can get in trouble for is if you get hit with some kind of EO issue, you know, equal opportunity issue, which is a broad, you know, it's a, it's a nice sounding word and it sounds great, you know, equal opportunity, but that covers a lot of things. And it's it's so pervasive that it's it's destroyed any kind of accountability, any kind of real performance metric, which has led to a lot of these problems, you know, in a lot of these agencies, I imagine, you know, even from my own experience in the agency I work for, um, and it's just so pervasive that to me, it's, it's reached a detrimental point and it's, and it's only trending in the worst direction. You know, when I sat down in my yearly training and they gave us a class on microaggression, I'm like, wow, you know, it's almost anything you say or do can be interpreted and used against you. And, you know, for whatever, you know, uh, uh, purpose, somebody wants to do it. I just see where it's heading. I think it's getting worse and worse. And I don't think it really reflects, you know, and I noticed even with the younger soldiers in the military, the old black and white paradigm is, is, is no longer relevant to me. The amount of mixed uh, uh, racial people, um, I think the divides in this country are much more relevant or uh, geographical, maybe uh, rural, urban, suburban. You know, where I live here in Raleigh, North Carolina area, you have a tremendously large black middle class, upper middle class. And their interests, reality, are much more aligned with their white neighbors than, let's say, the inner city uh, uh, African-American uh, folks or a lot of the rural uh, white folks. You know, what that makes me think of is, and I, I don't remember if I told this story on this pod before, but when I was in college, I went to American University, and uh, it's actually right on point with what you're talking about. Jesse Jackson came, and he gave a speech. And it, the speech was about affirmative action because this was, I think at the time, like the Michigan case was a big deal. And so it, maybe it was, maybe that's too recent. I don't know. One of those big cases like this one was a big deal. And he gave this speech. And what he said was, he said, look, this is an East Coast private school. All of you, almost all of you who are here, your parents have money. And he said, let me explain affirmative action. He said, you white kids, your grandparents have money and your great grandparents probably have money too. He said, and for you black kids, maybe your parents have money, but your grandparents don't. He said, and that is the difference between being rich and being wealthy. Yeah. And I think, and, and then we went on to say, and so for you black kids, he said, if you lose your scholarship or if your parents lose their job, you're going home. He said, and most of you white kids, and I was in this group of the white kids he was describing, it totally resonated with me. He said, if either of those two things happen, you're calling your parents' parents. And you're staying in school. And I'm just kind of curious, and I don't know y'all's family history that well, but I'm just kind of curious in thinking about it that way. Like, do you feel like that can draw a distinction, like with the with the upper middle class black folks in the neighborhood where you live and like the white folks who, yeah, like they may be in the same house and in the same neighborhood, 
but they're probably working with a different level of strength in terms of the net underneath them. I mean, if you, if you took the white population as a whole and, and uh, African-American population as a whole, that would definitely be true. But I think that has changed. The gap has, you know, I don't know. I don't have the statistics on it, but just from my own, where I work, it's almost evenly split between black and white. And we're all very similar. You know, there's a lot of white, I mean, you, you know, you're from Missouri. There's a lot of white folks that they don't have generational wealth. Oh, for sure. Um, they're not, they're not uh, uh, privileged in, at least in that sense. Uh, and, you know, so it doesn't apply to everyone. And and nowadays, you know, uh, the way to correct that is not, I mean, this is a deep, this is, you know, maybe off a side topic, but you can't change the past. You, know, you can only go forward. You know, uh, a person today, whoever it is, whatever group is, you know, a white person, let's say, is not responsible for what happened in the past. No more than, let's say somebody, you know, uh, their father, you know, or their family in the past, they had a, a grandfather that you know, it was a heinous criminal of some kind, a murder or whatever. They're not responsible for the past. You can only go forward, you know. And I think if we keep focusing on the past, it's not going to get us anywhere. It's only going to further divide us. Now, listen, there are grievances. So when I say this, I don't mean to dismiss. There are grievances, of course. And there are long-term legacy effects of our history. I don't deny that. But to just focus on that and try to solve all the, you know, all the uh, wrongs of the past, you know, today... It's not going to solve anything. It's going to further divide us. And ultimately, people are just going to get stronger in their camps. And it's not going to serve us well in the long term, in my opinion. Somebody once said it, you know, it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility. Part of what I think that gets at is this sort of sense of like the JFK ask not what your country could do for you, you know, type of thing, which is like, I think we're divided if we let people divide us, right? Like if we all, if we got back to the point where we really were an American community, I think it would be easier for us to have a conversation about any sacrifices any one of us makes to help undo that legacy, you know, and this, this is not a small legacy, right? So it's like part of moving forward, I think, is up for debate, right? What does it mean to move forward? Like if you enslave somebody and then and even if we had a perfect end to slavery, right, it still doesn't like put people on an even footing. Now, we had an obviously very horrible end to slavery because we had jim crow and poll taxes and all sorts of stuff so we not only like didn't properly transition people out of slavery it, it, which is an impossible task anyway but we continued to i think you can agree right we like continued to make life miserable um yeah so m maybe we disagree on this but i'm not sure but i would wonder your impression is like what would it take for us to have that community where where, where you and i and, and other people we know are willing to take on more responsibility to say, hey, maybe my kid, well, you're different, right? You're you're not white, but like where like you'd feel comfortable with a white person being like, hey, I actually understand why I have to give up certain seats in certain places because of this shared responsibility we have to move forward. I just think it's 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 a very difficult thing and beyond the capacity of any society and definitely any government to kind of manage something like that. We don't, like I was mentioning earlier, we don't have a clean black and white society anymore. There's a lot of mixed people. Who qualifies as black? Who's white? We got a large and actually larger than a, the black population currently, Hispanic population, growing Asian population. You got Native Americans. Now you got LGBTQ. Where do they fall into this, you know, uh, uh, equation? And it's just, it's a, it's a gargled mess that is only going to lead to resentment, is only going to lead to uh, a further division. Uh, African-American population is definitely, uh, uh, I will definitely say, is a unique case. You know, they, to me, are the clear-cut victims, obviously, of, of our history. 
you know, I don't deny that at all. You know, it's not an easy fix, you know, but I, I have, I think even in my lifetime, I've seen tremendous progress. You know, it wasn't even when I was younger, I don't, you know, you go to the suburbs, you'd never see, you know, Staten Island, forget it. You know, <laughs> if you go, you know, you cross Forest Avenue on Staten Island, it was like a no-go zone for black people when we were younger. I think the younger, what I just, even people, generation after me, 20 years, you know, the kids that are in college age now and stuff like that. I think a lot of this stuff is remnants from the 1960s where the younger generation, and this is what disappoints me about what's happened in recent years. I really felt that the, especially when Obama was president and stuff, you know, seeing that, I felt like the younger generation was really close to just being able to leave a lot of that baggage behind and move forward. And I feel like we've slipped several steps back in the past several years for whatever reason, you know, that's a, you know, big discussion, but, uh, yeah, why do you think I, that was? I'd be curious. Because I agree that we've I mean, slipped, but yeah, like, why? Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, it's tough to pinpoint it. You know, um, um, I have to give that a lot of thought. Um, I, I, I'm not sure the younger generation has slipped. I think that the youngest generation is just more fixated on fixing terrible shit. I don't shit think that it's their fault. The I wouldn't blame the younger generation. I think it's uh, they've slipped only because we've allowed it to happen. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's them. Personally, what do, that's what slipped. do we all and mean, what do you mean by, by slipped, slipped, I guess. Yeah, sorry. I think I, I, I mean, agree, I, I, mean I, I was agreeing with a different part of the point, but we, I yeah, mean, what I, do you when mean I say slipped, slipped yeah. I mean, as a society as a whole, we fell back in what comes to race relations. I mean, that's a better way to put it. I felt like we were on the verge of really taking a quantum leap forward. And just from my own observations, you know, anecdotally, even though I was saying the military or wherever I was at, just seeing the amount of interaction, the uh, kind of melting of all cultures and that I saw, and I just didn't see the racial divides that I saw when I was younger, in a lot of the younger generation. And something happened, I don't know what it is, you know, it's a long discussion, who knows, that we've just, we've gone backwards in real, in recent years. Uh, I wouldn't put the blame on the new generation, I don't think it's their fault. Um, if anything, you know, usually like most things, the older generation's fault. Well, I wonder if, I, I wonder if what we're really talking about, because, you know, I, I feel like when we say race relations, what we... What people tend to mean, and I think in a good-natured way, is the races getting along, right? And harmony between the races. When, And, and I think that the African-American community, a lot of it is saying like, yeah, we are less interested in getting along and more interested in getting justice. And, and I think that over the last several years, there have been steps forward, uh, some steps back, but steps forward in, um, in the black community getting some sense of justice. And I wonder... If that has contributed, in fact, I think that has contributed to less racial harmony because white people are pissed about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're starting to deviate it to more like kind of the Black Lives Matter movement, the kind of... Um, yeah, but I'm curious what you think about that that way of looking at it. Well, yeah, I think that definitely play a part in it. But I think the issue with um, the whole criminal justice reform and some of these, you know, let's say high profile police cases is that you're not really allowed in the wider society to take kind of a sober look at these cases individually or kind of um, even on a, a, a kind of nuanced, broader view. You have to kind of plant your flag. You don't have to, but I see your point that you feel like that's the ner that's the inertia. At least in our national dialogue that we're having, you know, through the media or whatever, you know, social media, media and all that, you're kind of forced to in a way. You don't have to if you're, you know, a strong enough person, you know, you you have you you're around people that are willing to listen, you know, to accept what you have to say, but for the most part, it seems like it, it's it's kind of tribalized people a lot. I I think we, you know you definitely hit it you know uh, on a, a topic that definitely has contributed to 
what's going on, uh, kind of Black Lives Matter movement, the wider criminal, you know, police, criminal justice reform movement has definitely created a giant wedge in society. And for you personally, so, I'm curious. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, listen, I work in a prison, you know, I was so gonna you guess. Know, I have some, so like me personally, I'm, I, I was very much, and I've seen a lot of people get released that should have got released. A lot of the drug laws were insane, you know, um, you know, so they were rightfully changed, you know, a lot of the crack cocaine laws, the kind of mandatory, you know, the sentence guidelines that they changed. And I've seen a lot of people get released, but a lot of people that started with Obama, but Trump also, um, there's been a lot, I've telling you from firsthand experience, people with life sentences get released. Listen, that's just on the federal level, but it's trickled down to the states, to different states to one degree or another. But uh, when it comes to the wider, let's say, come out of, you know, police shootings, there's obviously an issue in this country at over-policing. You know, I can tell you, Robbie knows this, I had some firsthand experience that myself when I was younger. You know, you have to be very careful. You know, we're seeing. Should we tell that the, story? Uh, are you is are, is 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 it enough <laughs> to tell that well, story? Well, basically, I'll tell I'll tell the story. Yeah, basically, I got kind of like fault. You know, you want me? To, I mean, I don't know if you want me to tell that story. You know, because uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's more negative towards you than me. <laughs> okay, Although, yeah, you know, I really want to hear. Told, it. Truth yeah, be yeah. told, you know, I did yeah. similar things before that. You know, it was just that yeah, particular. Why don't day. you tell it? I, I think this is illustrative. So basically, what happened is like <laughs> um, I I don't remember how old, 15, 14 years old. You know, we had a neighbor, you know, we were friends with. Robbie, in this particular time, was throwing, like, was it, like, batteries? Or I don't know what you're throwing on the side light, of the light, house. Light bulbs in, at, yeah, at the, light neighbor, bulbs at the neighbor's the house. house. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I didn't know this, so I come home. I'm with a, you know, a friend who unfortunately passed away, Chris. Um, I have no idea what's going on. These two plainclothes police officers approach me, and they ask me if I'm Robbie, and I say no. I don't remember exactly what happened, but it wound up them taking me down to the ground and dragging me into the police station. You know, the police car, then to the police station, and they say, uh, Robbie was taking, like, karate at the time. They're like, oh, you see, you're a tough guy. You know, I'm, like, 14. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm crying like a little baby. You know, I ain't gonna lie now, you know, it's at the time, you know. It was a traumatizing experience. You know, and these kind of meathead cops, you know, uh, you know, kind of were uh, having their fun with me, took me down to this police station. My grandfather, you know, who passed away about a year ago, is an ex-NYPD officer, came down there kicking and screaming to the precinct and they got me released, long story short. So they let you go because your grandfather came down? Well, they had nothing. No, no, you with, actually, you know, I don't think if you remember this, but you had to go to court for that because I remember I was ready yeah, to I did. testify. I did. What happened was we were stranded. Yeah. We sued them. We sued yeah. them and they oh, went up dropping me. the charges to drop the lawsuit. And just so to illustrate the whole thing, your grandfather, white guy, right? Correct. Yes. So, I mean, that also potentially changes the dynamic of the, of the story. Well, potentially. I think... My grandfather went down. They had. They were gonna have to release me anyway. You know, there was no crime there. They were trying to just scare me and play with me. So, how did that experience? I'm curious how that experience shaped your approach now. I mean, your in, in corrections work. Like, I'm just curious how that informed you. And and Yuri, it's not just that incident, right? I mean, you might. I'm trying to remember if you were there for all of this. But the cops used to routinely like find us and line us up and harass us in the neighborhood. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, but to be, let's be fair. Uh, Robbie, we were we, doing, we were doing yeah, some dumb yeah. things. We weren't exactly innocent little kids running around, you know, like, uh, but listen, that being said, I've been stopped and, you know, I was, we grew up in New York in the nineties, even on Staten Island, I was stopped and frisked on several occasions, you know, but on the flip side of that, let's say like you were asking me about how it makes my look on the prisons and stuff like that. Listen, it's a, it's not a pleasant business. You know, if it's not, you know, you can have different types of people that work in corrections. You have people that, are too friendly with the inmates. You know, a lot of times you get these uh, wannabe, you know, they want to show the inmates that they're, you know, thugs themselves and that they're cool and they're down with the, you know, they're part of the street. And then you get the other side, you get kind of the sadistic cowboy types, you know, uh, that enjoy being the uh, in charge and 
Um, so you have to just find your own personality and kind of most people find them in the middle or whatever. Uh, but when you're dealing with, especially when I used to work in California, when I was a high, in the high security prison, you're dealing with some of the, uh, the worst people <laughs> that, you know, that the country has to offer, you know, and some of these people are irredeemable. In particular, when it comes to prisons, one of these criminal justice reform things that's being pushed heavily by mostly people that don't understand corrections at all is solitary confinement. Solitary confinement, has it been overused in the United States? Yes, it has. I will say that myself. But the idea of eliminating solitary confinement is is crazy. In my, you know, in my opinion, most people that work in corrections, it's an, an unfortunate but necessary tool to managing an inmate population. Yeah. Let's pause there for a second because I think that's like an important point you just made. So if we took your views, right? Like your view is that it's been overused, but it, it's an important tool. And then you take the activist view, right? Which is not Biden's view, not Obama's view, not Cuomo's view, right? So it's not like currently the view of Democrats in charge of most places, if not any place, really. But there are activists who are pushing for a total ban on solitary. Now, the effect of the activists saying that there's a total ban on solitary, which is which is very likely what they want, is probably not going to be to end solitary confinement across the country, but maybe to actually get at what you're talking about, right? Like if they say, let's get rid of solitary, it could lead to the very changes that you want, no? In a perfect world, yes, but I think... It's not necessarily the politicians that are doing it. It's usually, this stuff is happening usually through the courts. Right now, it's a hodgepodge of rules and regulations and court rulings. And it's just become unmanageable, you know. And, you know, where I work, like any other bureaucracy, has its problems when it comes to implementing things, managing things, changing, you know, effectively. There's a tremendous pressure to eliminate solitary confinement. And I think it's reached a point now where it's gone too far. So hopefully the pendulum swings back, but there's not a lot of, in the public space, in the, in the greater public debate, there's not a lot of people taking the position I just outlined, solitary confinement as a management tool in a prison. Well, actually, let's do that here then. Well, yeah, let, why don't you explain? Because I think, I, I don't think I fully understand the issue, if I'm being honest. A discipline, it's like basically the jail inside the jail. When someone commits a crime or an infraction in prison, <laughs> there's not many, you don't have a lot of options. Is, and we, unfortunately, I can talk about this because it's in the public news. There was an officer in uh, USP Allenwood who recently got stabbed in the eyeball, lost his eye. What do you do with someone like that? that obviously, that's an extreme example, but let's take the extreme example, and that's, that can illustrate it best, right? That inmate, you can't release him to the general population. You know, he, he has to be locked up in solitary confinement. And not only to protect, also to deter other inmates as a punishment. You know, I know it's a, a, a dirty word. Because it's more than rehabilitation, it's also punishment, you know, correct, you know uh, to correct a, a negative behavior. Due to maybe some of our outdated, you know, outdated policies in prisons, there's no middle ground. We need a middle ground. And it's kind of being discussed on the out, you know, periphery. We need an in-between lockdown kind of unit. If you could just cleanly say, hey, look, you committed, you know, you didn't, you, know, you didn't stab someone in the eyeball, but you've done something that we need to address, you're going to spend the night or the day in special housing, in and out. We don't need a mountain of paperwork. We're just going to put you there. But, you know, there's a lot of room in there in between to kind of come up with a, a solution. I just don't think it's going to happen that way because it's going to be all dictated by court orders. Um, and that's what concerns me. I'm going to defer to you on prison policy. I don't I don't work in federal corrections. So I, you know, I, I'm of, of the three of us here, I'm going to assume that you're going to have a better sense of, of what that sort of policy ought to be. But one thing I noticed that is interesting, and I think a, a conundrum for liberals is like, based on what you said earlier, it sounds to me like 
and I'm just going to run through a list. Like, you don't have a problem with gay marriage, I don't think. No, not at all. No. And it doesn't sound, and maybe I'm wrong, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but it doesn't sound like you're out, you know, standing outside, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood protesting. No, I wouldn't be protesting. I'm not, maybe I'm more, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm pro-life, you know, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm somewhere in between, you know, let's put it that way. Not an issue that animates you. Yeah. Yeah, no, not at all. Okay. Um, you know, I'm sure we could go down the list. Heck, the Iraq war. I mean, you're like, yeah, yeah Republicans are wrong about that shit. So what I think is interesting in a conundrum for, for liberals, and you can help us figure out how to, how to reach more moderate to conservative folks like you is, it sounds like, like you agree with a lot of liberal stuff after it's been accomplished. And what you're worried about uh, is, well, I'm just like, you know, yeah. conservatives, I'm not saying you did, but conservatives opposed gay marriage all the way that, you know, all that stuff. But you're concerned with not what the Democratic politicians in power are attempting to do, but what you're worried the further elements of the left and, as you put it, the future want to do. But what I'm wondering is it, it sort of puts us in a position where we have to represent views that we may not even hold. Right. Like I, I have no idea what I think about solitary confinement. I'm going to have to think about it because this is the first conversation I've had about it. It's an important issue, but it's just not something I'm well informed about. And I think where this stuff usually breaks down is most people's instinct is then to elevate a bunch of stuff from the far right and try and force you to own it. Of which course, yeah, I yeah. think would be disingenuous. Well, I, about, yeah, I believe I thank you for not bringing out Trump. I can't defend him, so I'm glad you guys haven't uh, bludgeoned me with that hammer. That's my point. Is like, how do we reach a person like you who views? The stuff that is maybe we haven't said defund the police, but we've sort of talked about I've it, got, right? I've got the gist of your question. I think yeah. one big area we haven't addressed is economics. And, you know, when it came to that, I, I would say I'm much more on the conservative side when it comes to economics, even government policy, when it comes to, you know, social welfare. You know, it's a large subject in itself. So when it comes to that, you know, you're not going to convince me. I, I don't know, you know, my opinion, I'm, you know, I'm pretty entrenched in my views. You know, I'm uh, comfortable with my views. You know, I, I'm well aware of the arguments, counter arguments. You know, not as much as I used to be. I don't follow things as close as no, I used to. No, you're pretty well informed, man. I mean, yeah, but like, no doubt. Uh, so you're not going to change someone like my mind, you know, easily. Yeah. Before we go there, like about what? Like when you say don't change your mind, like what? What do you? What would you say your most entrenched economic beliefs are that you do, that distinguish the two parties? Well, economics, like for instance, you know, I'm very much. Well, I just left California, right? It's a great example. Take a middle class person in California when it comes to tax policy, regulations. I'm very much like, when, for instance, when I vote, it's saying California got all these propositions, or even here in North Carolina, sometimes they have it. If it raises taxes, I don't care what it's for, or it costs, if it's a, some kind of bond they want you to vote for, borrow this to take care of this, I always vote against it. You know, uh, I'm a firm believer. I don't think the government has the capacity to fix many problems, it can only make it worse. I don't care what the issue is. When people are looking for the government to get more involved, let's say, in healthcare, inevitably it's going to be more expensive, less inefficient, and ultimately less accountable. So, uh, you know, it's a very broad stroke, but that kind of gives you a general idea how I think of things. I'm curious. I'm, I don't want to cut you off, but I, it's, I, I can only ask this when you're talking about this exact thing. I'm curious of your view on private prisons. I'm against private prisons. And, I, you know, I, I understand, like, maybe there's a contradiction on the surface there. The reason why I'm against private prisons is because... There are, I'm not an anarchist, you know, I do believe are complete libertarian. There are functions of the government and prisons would definitely fall on that. You're taking away somebody's liberty through, you know, the government's essentially doing it, taking away your liberty. And uh, so I'm very much against private prisons uh, for a lot of reasons, for that reason. And also they tend to be, the staff there are not, you know, they're not sworn officers. There's no... They go as cheap as they can, I assume, right? Yeah. Then, uh, and usually like the private prisons, 
they tend to handle lower level offenders and stuff like that. But regardless, they're not. They sh- I don't believe the government should be in a uh, uh, private prison. The government shouldn't, you know, they should be private militaries or anything like that or police forces. You know, some that kind of stuff, you know, fire, all that kind of stuff. But at school. School, obviously you need a public school, you know, option. But, you know, you know, that's, you know, but there is a lot more room for private or, you know, charter schools, maybe not necessarily private, but different alternatives to, to the government monopoly we currently have in schools. So using that analogy, would you be okay with, a public option for healthcare as opposed to so as opposed to like make it, you know, the, the analogy being don't make everybody go to public school. People can go to private school if they want, but here's a public option. Well, the thing is that if you institute a public option, ultimately the, you know, people can't compete against the government the government will eventually swallow up most of the private. It'll be left the, the private insurance will be left for the wealthy. And, you know, people, like you see in Europe and stuff like that or Canada, I just, I mean, you should know as a veteran, the VA is an absolute disaster. Do you go to the VA? Yeah, I do. I do go to the VA, some, you know, and I know plenty of people that have. Sure, yeah, me too. I was you just know, I can wondering. tell many horror stories, you know. And it's just the government in this country, I don't know about, I can't speak on Sweden, you know, uh, it's a different country, different culture and smaller country. But in the United States, the government as we currently, you know, functions or how bureaucracies currently function and the culture in the bureaucracies is not capable of running something like, what is it, 12% of the U.S. economy? Now, public option, that doesn't necessarily mean they're running it. Yes, that's why I'm asking. I do, I do think we need some way, and I don't have the perfect, you know, the Obamacare was kind of on the right track, I think, in some ways. You know, like most half measures, you know, is doomed to fail. It's, it's a very complicated issue, but I, you know, we have to address a lot more of the cost. And the cost is not, you know, easily solved. The, and the cost, I think, has a lot to do with anytime that you could take this with education, healthcare, any other, there's a lot of different uh, areas I'm thinking of. The more the government gets involved, the more expensive it's going to become, in my opinion. I think that's a big reason why we have a, such a huge inflation in education. But you could, you, we've run this experiment, right? You could, you could study Canada or the UK or you know any of these countries, and I think the costs for delivery of healthcare in those countries is way, way lower than it is here with better health outcomes. And I don't so- know if that's a, a far problem of the healthcare system, or more of just American culture when it comes to food and dieting and exercise. I don't know if that the government's not going to solve that problem, no matter you know how hard Mich- Michelle Obama tries. It's not going to happen. <laughs> That's a, it has to be done by the people, you know. You would think, Yuri, that it would be in the interest of these private insurance companies to solve that problem. And that therefore, if the market could solve that problem, it would have been solved, right? Well, we don't have a free market in healthcare. I would, you know, it's a heavily regulated market, you know. Uh, um, I wouldn't, and I'm, not, I'm not saying we need a, a, a just, you know, full laissez-faire free market in healthcare, but I, I would dispute the fact that we have a, a, anywhere approaching a free market in healthcare. It's a highly regulated market on many levels. I don't think we actually have a free market in anything. I think we just call stuff a free market. Let's do this. Uh, Yuri, as your final answer here, and we could do a part two of this another time. Give this us has been your awesome, view. by the way. I just want to say I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll it. definitely do it again. You voted for Trump, I think. Uh, in the last election, I did vote for Trump this time. I didn't vote for the first time mainly because I was moving at the time. I voted for him. <laughs> not, I'm not the biggest fan of Trump. I really not. I think he's, uh, and you're seeing it now more than ever. He's a, his biggest issue, in my opinion, is the egomaniac. You know, uh, you know, they're all all these politicians are mostly narcissists, but he's like on an extreme clinical level, and that's more than anything else his biggest issue amongst others. But I voted for him just because you know, in a binary choice. I really thought, you know, if you told me that if I could have guaranteed that the we could have had a divided government, then maybe I would consider not vote, just not voting for anyone. But uh, I want to vote for Trump, not enthusiastically, 
But uh, if you give me a binary choice, then, you know, I voted for Trump. So, listeners, if you're listening to this, uh, tweet at me and Jason if you want to hear the second part of this conversation when we dive more into what Yuri just said. Uh, <laughs> well done, Yuri, Ravi. <laughs> uh, well, Yuri, uh, thank you for this yeah. conversation. Um, no problem. I hope, appreciate it. I hope this at least proves, if nothing else, that you can air your views on the left and we won't jump down your throat. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah. no but yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys a lot uh, easier than I thought. Of, you know, luckily you didn't beat me. Over. You know, I, I already determined I was not going to sit here and defend Trump. It's a, you know, it's been a waste of my time and a losing proposition. So uh, I'm glad we only addressed at the end. But if, you know, like you said, if people want to hear more about that, I will gladly talk about it. Well, like our whole objective with this show is to is to help people have conversations that it doesn't yeah. mean that every time they talk to somebody that it's going to end with that person being like, oh, my God, you're right about everything. But there's yeah. something productive about continuing to have the conversation, because, for instance, like, I don't know what I think about solitary confinement, but you've convinced me to at least go learn more about it. And, and I think that that advances your goal on the subject. And I would hope that there's some things, maybe the public option or things like that, that, you know, you come out of this conversation going, yeah, maybe maybe I can continue to consider what they're saying on that. And I think that's the whole goal of this show. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. This is fun. Well, uh, well, Yuri, I'll see you on video, I hope, on, uh, on Christmas Eve. This has been really interesting, and I hope people got a lot out of it. Like Ravi said, if you want to hear more, if you want to hear part two of this, let us know that you enjoyed this. Leave a review, but also you know, tweet at us. An extra thing that we wanted to do for you all this holiday season, Headspace gave us a six-month trial when they chose to advertise with us. But we've both already been using Headspace for a long time, so we didn't need it. So we decided to give that special six-month code away to one of our listeners. So send us voicemails with your best questions, and in the new year, we're going to pick our favorite one to gift that trial for free. But if you can't wait till the new year, you can start using Headspace right away if you go to headspace.com m54. That voicemail again, by the way, if you want to call, it's 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. As always, you can find us on social media. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. A quick reminder that if you're looking for last-minute holiday gifts, you can still order Grab and Or t-shirts on wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire for friends and family who follow this show. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.